If you have a true friend, you love when they succeed. You love it. You love when their kids succeed. You just love it. Because friendship's what binds you, not competition and being better than the other person. Why have we become a nation of people who are bowling alone? Welcome to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Our culture is more and more becoming a group of isolated people. So how do we answer God's call to love one another? In the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, God illustrates the value of true friendship in the relationship between King David and Jonathan. Well, I have a friend who came down from the north and, and he wanted to taste for the first time this phenomenon that we have in the south called white ice cream, that which we eat at breakfast time. And he went into a restaurant and he said to the waitress, I think I'll have a grit. She said, Lord, honey, what you talking about? She said, you can't have a grit. If you're going to have a grit, you got to have grits, sweetheart. Grits, plural. They come together. They stick together. You got to have not a grit. You got to have grits. And I thought myself when I heard that story, that's the church. We're saved by grace alone, but we were never intended to live alone. We're supposed to live together in community. In fact, it's been recently proved in a study that isolation causes the brain to change. That isolation causes people to be more impulsive and less able to com- control themselves. So if you're isolated and don't have many friends, you are damaging your brain. American friendships are in crisis. There was an epic work by Putnam who said that we are now, as Americans, bowling alone. The premise being that before the 1990s, we had bowling teams, we had friends. Now people don't have friends. We are bowling alone. What's the reason for it? I have five reasons that I've been able to think of. First of all, the breakup of the family. The closest friendships are supposed to be between child and parent and brother and sister, but with the breakup of the family, those relationships have been isolated. Secondly, There are no longer any roots in America. Uh, It's been estimated that by the year 35 in an average American's life, we will have gone through 30 jobs. We move from city to city to city trying to find the next best job, and our rootlessness causes a lack of relationships, a lack of friendships. Thirdly, our jobs. Where before, jobs would often form teams of people who would have a task they would try to accomplish, and in that task, they would develop close friendships. Now, today, the primary motivation of all jobs is profit, not people. So people just get the task done, and there's a failure to build close friendships in the workplace. Fourth, uh, what I will call garage door openers. We work hard all day long. We come home. We press the garage door. The door opens. We get inside. We close the door. Then we put alligators in the moat around our house, and we don't want to have anything to do with anybody. Isn't it true? We used to have front porches in a lot of homes in America, implying that we would sit on those front porches, rock, and someone from next door might come by and sit, and we build a friendship with them face-to-face, which leads to the fifth reason, social media. 
We now flip up a screen, text, email, Facebook, people, but we seldom sit face-to-face with them just a few feet apart and share our lives with one another, become close, intimate friends with one another. God created us for friendships, folks. Friends, the term friends is mentioned 150 times in the Bible. I would suggest to you that we need to understand close, intimate friendships as a spiritual discipline the same way we understand prayer and fasting. Jesus said, as I have loved you, now love one another. The call to love one another is a spiritual discipline to be taken as seriously as prayer or fasting. Let me ask you this question. If you needed to bury a body at 3 o'clock in the morning, would you have anybody to call? Not that I'm suggesting you bury a body at 3 o'clock in the morning. Just make my point, okay? Or, Or would you have somebody you could call if you were in jail to get you out immediately? Do you have that kind of close friend? Well, the Bible says we're supposed to have them. Proverbs 18.24 is a great verse. Would you read it with me? A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We all need a friend who sticks closer than a brother or a sister. 1 Corinthians 15.33 is a fascinating verse. Would you read it with me? Paul writes, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. My daddy used to say all the time, friends are like elevators. They'll take you up or they'll take you down. Isn't it true? Well, as this verse says, bad company, bad friends, corrupts morals is the elevator that takes you down. Good friends are good elevators that will take you up. And by the way, one friend of mine came to faith in Christ and read this verse and went home and burned and buried and broke all of his bad company albums from the 1980s and 90s. Not what this verse is trying to say, okay? It's simply saying we all need good friends, and good friends will either take us up or they'll take us down. If Marilyn was here with me, we would say to all you parents, you have every right to intercede with your kids' friends because you're a lot smarter than they are, right? And they can bring your kids down. Be careful. So so here begs the question, what are the qualities I need for a great personal friendship? Well, let's look at the life of David and his close friend, Jonathan, the kind of qualities that made their close friendship occur. Let's look at these four qualities. First of all, there was a common interest that both of them shared, a common interest that both of them shared. Let's look briefly at the life of Jonathan. He was Saul's son. Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul was a paranoid schizophrenic who rebelled against God, was not in the heart of God after a while, but Jonathan still loved his dad, as we'll see in just a moment. Jonathan had skills of his own that were exceptional. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, we see those skills being manifested. The Philistines were the Jews' mortal enemies, and they were in yet another conflict with them. The Jews were hiding Unable to continue the battle, Jonathan is with his armor bearer, and he says, we have a great God. Nothing's impossible with our God. Come on with me. Let's just you and me go fight the Philistines. 
So they start clanging, uh, climbing up some craggy rocks, and one of the members of the Philistine garrison looks down and says, hey, look, the Jews are finally coming out of their holes hiding. And they yell down to Jonathan, are you coming up here to fight us, or do we need to come down there and fight you? Jonathan says, I'm coming up there. So he climbs up the mountain, gets amidst the Philistine garrison, about 20 people, and he just goes superhero. He takes them all on. And in just a few minutes, he kills 20 of the Philistines. Well, all the others watch this happen, and suddenly an earthquake breaks out. God's miraculous, supernatural intervention on Jonathan's behalf. Jonathan believed nothing's impossible with God. had a great, huge faith and a courageous heart. And whenever the earthquake broke out and they saw Jonathan kung fuing all the guys around him, they started running away. And all the Jews came out of their holes, and they started pursuing them. Jonathan comes back as a hero before all of the people. So Jonathan is a remarkable guy. Then we saw in the first lesson on David a couple of weeks ago in 1 Samuel 16 how Samuel, the great prophet and judge, came and chose David from among all the brothers of Jesse, the last one, the runt, the one who was least expected to be chosen as the next king over all of Israel. And Samuel anoints him right then and there as the king, and then he leaves. Now, what completes that chapter then is a story about Saul in his paranoia falling into large, long, deep moods of depression. So someone asked the question, is there somebody out there who can play music and help Saul through these dark days? Someone says, yeah, Jesse has a son named David from Bethlehem. He can play the harp. He puts music together. He's really, really good. So they go and get him and bring him into the court. And when Saul falls into one of these mood swings of depression, David starts playing his harp and Saul comes out of the depression. It's the first example biblically of music therapy. And now we see David having access to the court. He went home some, but then had access to the court to play songs for Saul. Most assuredly, this is the first time he met Jonathan. David's around 18 years of age at this time, an adolescent. Jonathan's probably about 10 years older, but their hearts started melting together. Their hearts started connecting. Why? They started seeing, I think, first of all, their common faith in God. Because David, like Jonathan, believed nothing is impossible with God. I think they also started talking courage stories. And I think during this time, David probably said to Jonathan, the strangest thing happened to me. Samuel, the great prophet and judge, came to my home one day and anointed me king over Israel. And Jonathan must have gone, that is weird. Because dad is king over Israel. And he anointed you to be king over over Israel. That doesn't make much sense. And then 1 Samuel 17 happens, the story of Goliath, that big, bodacious, belligerent, baritone giant calling out Israel, and everybody is afraid to fight him except David, the little shepherd boy who will not put on Saul's armor, but goes and meets Goliath only with a slingshot and five smooth stones. He doesn't need five, he just needs one, kills the giant, and all of Israel goes crazy. And I can't help but wonder if right after that happened, David went into Jonathan's pavilion at the battlefield and Jonathan looked at him and said, wow, I thought I had faith. You have greater faith than I do. I I thought I was courageous with the Philistine garrison. You put me to shame with your courage. They had common interests. 
close friends or people with whom you have common interests, whether it's sports or faith or whatever it might be, there are common interests that bind you together. Keep that in mind. The next point is there's no competition between people who are real close friends. Right after Jonathan sees David slay Goliath, in 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 4, listen to the narrative. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, you need to know, Jonathan had what's called primogeniture. What what does that mean? Primogenitors, the firstborn son in the Israelite days, had right to the inheritance of the father. The firstborn son got twofold of the inheritance. The nextborn son would get a third and then less than for the next boys. But Jonathan was the next in line to be king. Yet he looks at David, probably remembers the story that David told him of how Saul, Samuel anointed him to be the next king over Saul. And at some moment after Goliath, Jonathan takes David and their hearts are knit together in what's called a covenant friendship. They make vows to one another that will last forever. They become knit together in their hearts. And not only that, Jonathan takes it to another extreme. Before David, as they knit their hearts together in a covenant friendship, he takes off his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt. And the implication is he gave them to David. Do you see what he did? He's in line to be king. He says, David, you're more gifted than I am. You should be king. What a friendship. (laughs) Do you know where shaking hands comes from? Some people have said, oh, that means people walking down the road and trying to say, I don't have a sword in my hand. Balderdash, that's not from where it comes. Here's the meaning of shaking hands. When you hold out your hand to somebody, what you're saying to them is, I need something from you. When you have an open hand, you're expecting a reception of something given to you. But when two people come together and they clasp hands, their fingers enwrapping each other's palm, what you're basically saying is, I don't need anything from you. I just want to be your friend. I'm not expecting anything from you. I'm not going to use you for my purposes. I just want to be your friend. The same implication, by the way, parenthetically, is when we lift our hands to God in worship, some of you may look around and think, that person's really weird. But from God's standpoint, do you know what? He loves it. Why? Because that person with their open hand or hands in worship is saying, I need you, oh God. I need everything that you have. I'm nothing. You're everything. All of my life is totally dependent, surrendered to you. That's what an open hand means. Well, David and Jonathan clasped hands, saying we're in a covenant friendship with one another, and then Jonathan turns around and gives him everything that he has that signifies power, basically saying, David, you're now the king. 
The closest thing I think we come to in our day is remember the camp days when you were 10, 11, 12 years old and you would go to camp and you would usually be around a campfire and you will have sung Kumbaya 500 times and then at the end of the final Kumbaya, you'll turn to the special person that you've made a friendship with during your weeks at the camp and you'll say, let's be friends for life. And how do you signify that? You then take a little pin and prick your finger and you ooze out a little blood. The other person does the same thing. Then what do you do? What do you do, folks? You put your fingers together and you say, we are now blood brothers or blood sisters forever. This implication is your blood's intermingling with my blood. My blood's intermingling with your blood. We are set together for everything. And that friendship lasts through the summer. And then it ends. Just like in high school, I've discovered I had a lot of acquaintances, not real friends, because I don't talk to them anymore. But a friend is someone with whom your life is bound for a long, long period of time. Did you see here how true friendships don't have competition? Jonathan wasn't competing with David. David wasn't competing with Jonathan. If you have a true friend, you love when they succeed. You love it. You love when their kids succeed. You just love it because friendship's what binds you, not competition and being better than the other person. Thirdly, a true friend is a source of verbal encouragement. After Goliath was defeated, Saul said, David, you can't go home anymore, and he made him a general in his army. And so David went out and fought the Philistines several times, and he won every single battle. It was astounding. So when David would come back from the battles, along with Saul, who was also out there fighting, the women in the city would do the Harlem Shake. And they would start crying out, Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his ten thousands. And they would shout with their songs of victory for David. And Saul, already in his paranoid state, would become increasingly paranoid toward David. listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in a discussion about hearing the still, small voice of God. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Tony Marciano, President and CEO of Charlotte Rescue Mission. Let me ask you a question. What do you do when you stand at the intersection of homelessness and addiction? Let me put you in that person's shoes for just a second. What is it that you really need? You've probably been one of the individuals who stood at the end of the interstate ramp holding a sign that said, Hungry, will work for food. But you never used the money for food. You bought booze and drugs with it. And most likely, you hate your life. Your addiction has stolen every aspect of hope. You want to be part of the fabric of society, but every morning your addiction screams and you surrender to it. There is one thing you do need, and that is transformation. The place to go is Charlotte Rescue Mission. Charlotte Rescue Mission works from the inside out to address the root cause of someone at the crossroads of addiction and homelessness. The Rescue Mission provides free, Christian, residential, high-quality substance abuse recovery programs to members of our community who otherwise would not be able to afford such services. 
With a passion for holistic transformation and a love for Christ, the mission's 120-day program has transformed the lives of thousands of men and women in our community. Charlotte Rescue Mission is grateful for the financial partnership of Moments of Hope Church. I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jen. Always good to be with you. Well, you as well. Today, we're going to talk about your latest Davidism called Hear God's Whispers. How do we become better listeners to God's whispers? Well, Jen, my wife wrote a book many years ago entitled, Sometimes He Whispers, Sometimes He Roars. Mm. It's such a wonderful title because sometimes God roars in our ears and we know clearly what his voice is saying to us. We know what we're supposed to do. And sometimes he whispers. I would even say, most often, I think he whispers. It's that inward reality of Jesus in us whispering to our hearts, telling us what we're supposed to do this day. And I really believe that we're supposed to have a personal relationship with the God of this universe through Jesus Christ. In John 17, Jesus said, as the Father and I are one, now I am one with you, which means I'm one with the Father as well. And that's just amazing to think that the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, all three, the triune God, live inside of me. And if that's true, then what does John 10, 27 mean when Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. So we've got to believe that the Father wants to speak to us as the great shepherd and tell us what he wills us to do. I think most of the time he speaks in a whisper. So should we begin every single morning opening up our hearts, listening to the voice of the Lord who will whisper to us, go here, go there. Uh, go care for, and then even give us the picture of somebody he wants us to care for. And I think that can happen all day long as we're talking to the Father in prayer, and also he's whispering back to us regarding how he desires us to live this day. Mm -hmm. He only gives us this day. You know, Mm -hmm. Jesus taught us to pray in the disciples' prayer, give us this day our daily bread. He doesn't promise us tomorrow. He Mm -hmm. just promises us this day. So today, open your hearts, listen to the whisper of the Lord, and hear where he wants you to go. Again, John 10, 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. He's talking to us. And just like a radio transmission, you need to have your radio on the dial to hear the voice of the person talking to you. Mm. We need to put our ears next to the Lord's lips and Mm. hear him whisper to us what Mm. he desires. I love that. Actually, one of the most powerful and significant moments in my life, (laughs) I remember making the bed, you know, doing just the daily ordinary things. And I was crying out to God, God, I need direction for this next season. And in that moment, I just felt this whisper say, you haven't thanked me for this previous season yet. Hmm. And I remember exactly where I was standing in the sheets I was pulling up and I was like, thank you for the last 12 years of being able to stay home with my kids. Mm. And it was a true, pure moment of just responding to the whisper. It can be life-changing. It really can be. I I can remember one time I was driving down the road and the whisper said to me, stop and go visit with this person who had an office right that I was passing Mm -hmm. by at that moment. So I went into his office, his secretary knew me and I said, I think I'm supposed to see so-and-so. And And she said, well, let me see if he's busy. And he wasn't. So he invited me into his office. And I said, 
you're going to think I'm nuts, I know, but I think the Holy Spirit just told me to come and tell you something, and I told it to him, and he broke down in tears. Amazing. He, Amazing. This is an adventure. Yeah, it is. It's a great adventure from the Lord, and I spoke right to his place of need. I just oh. think, Jen, God wants to do that with all of us yeah. in order to use us as his instruments of courage and mm-hmm. encouragement to other people. Such great insight today. Thank you so much, David. Yeah, thank you, Jen, as well. And if you listeners would like to receive these daily e-blast. Go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there. My Davidisms will arrive in your box every morning at 7 a.m. from my heart to yours to give you a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message is from our online worship service, and you can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. While you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. And also, check out David's weekly Hopecast. They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston. I hope you have a great weekend.